A time of so much information, but so little understanding. A time of so many opinions, but so little truth. We need wisdom. God loves when we seek it. God gives when we seek it. Today marks the first day that I am not preaching on a long weekend or some other day when every other pastor just happens to be gone. So thank you, Tim. Coincidentally, the topic for today just happens to be, ready for this? Bad sex and adultery. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Jokes aside, we actually think there is something beneficial about someone from a younger generation than usual tackling this conversation. What do I have to offer in terms of personal experience? Not a whole lot, let's be real. But I think there is still something, two things in fact, that I hope to lean into. Number one, the conversation around sexuality in our culture is developing rapidly. Things that we believe today or talk about today were different from what they were five years ago, let alone 10, 20, or 30. It's quick, it changes. And while I do not claim to understand every particular nuance in this conversation, I've grown up in this world that is constantly evolving. What we hope for is to be a space where regardless of where you're at, whether you feel overwhelmed by the con constantly fluctuating narrative, whether you feel confused by the language that you're supposed to use, whether you feel even confused about your own sexuality, where you stand, what you believe in this conversation, we think you're in good company. This conversation has been heightened really to the forefront of our minds on a cultural level, and we want to engage with it. But we also think that there's something to be said just simply because God's wisdom talks about this. We've been doing this series in Proverbs, seeking God's wisdom, his perspective applied. And it's interesting to me that the book of Proverbs sets aside nearly three full chapters on sex. A book that is more known for quick insight decides to set aside three, nearly three full chapters. It's important. It's part of seeking wisdom. And here's, I think, why. I think human sexuality is a microcosm of the gospel. I think that in human sexual expression, we actually are given the ability to paint a picture of the story of Jesus. See, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, describes the marriage of a husband and a wife as somehow capturing the love of Christ for the church. Sex is a place of joy and intimacy and beauty. It's also a place of disappointment and regret and shame. It's raw. Really, in human sexuality, we see the human experience. I think this is why the conversation around sexuality is so important. Secondly, I think I'm in the only stage of life where it would be socially acceptable to talk about how I'm struggling. Because I'm an engaged guy, and as an engaged guy, people understand, right, okay, you're about to get married, there's some weakness there, I understand. 
I actually think that's a really important part. And we'll talk about that because there's something that is necessary in wisdom in order to understand what it is that God's doing in our lives that has to involve giving up ourselves, opening ourselves up to others. Let me show you what I mean. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. If you have a Bible or a device, I highly encourage you to turn there with me. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. You know, it's interesting to me that right at the beginning, this is a conversation between a father and a son. The point is this. I think wisdom is inherently relational. You know, our picture of wisdom might be like the monk on the mountain separated from society, but the fact that wisdom comes through a father to his son, I think it suggests that wisdom is not truly God's perspective until it is applied in the context of community. Now, what does that mean regarding sex? Well, you might be thinking, obviously, sexuality involves relationships, Nathan. Do you understand what sex is? Like, there has to be some form of relationship. I get you, I get you. But it's interesting that it's a father to a son, not sexual partners, that actually talk about wisdom. And this, in some way, I think, challenges how we would perceive the conversation around sexuality. It is an inherently relational conversation. It's a space where we need to be willing to enter the trenches. I think too often we start with a broad proclamation and do not enter into deep relationship and community. Let me illustrate it this way. We, as a church, would stand with a historical confession of the historical church that sex is reserved for marriage between a husband and a wife. I would be shocked if anyone is surprised to hear that. Because I don't know that where we're lacking necessarily is the proclamation of where we would stand doctrinally. I think we've done a lot of good work there. What I think is missing is walking alongside people who are wrestling, who are struggling, to actually enter into conversation and relationship with people, to enter the trenches. I think that's so important because in human sexuality, there is deep pain and hurt. Proverbs, the story, the passage goes on and talks about how in sexual temptation is a path of death. It's a path of wandering, of feeling not like we're not sure what's going on. Read with me in verse 7 here. And now, O sons, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Skip down a couple verses to verse 14. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Skip then to chapter 5, verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. Skip again, chapter 6, verse 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. You ready for this? He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. There's a lot of pain and heartache, and specifically we read here about shame. 
about this feeling of not being worth, worthy, worth it, of feeling dirty like you need to hide and to cover. I think shame has an interesting place in our society today. I don't think it's that we've forgotten shame. No. I actually think we have recognized the power of shame. So we seek to control it. See, especially in this area of conversation, I think there's two primary paths that we would take to deal with our shame. One option would be to limit its influence, perhaps to numb it through, through such things, perhaps as self-acceptance, through self-love. And those are oftentimes positive movements, but we try and deal with our shame simply of our own volition of trying to limit it and numb it. I think that's one option. I think another option is we would try to weaponize shame through outrage. If you've heard this phrase of cancel culture, we would target specific individuals that we don't think are worthy of dignity, of respect. Think specifically, say, of sexual abusers or pedophiles. These are the sort of people, the bottom of the moral ladder, that we would weaponize shame against them. And again, if there's a positive movement there, it's the protection of the vulnerable, and that is a positive thing. But there is something I think that's missing. See, what we're left with is not just a misunderstanding of grace, but a complete lack of its presence. Shame is described in Proverbs as a negative, practical motivator for why you should not pursue bad forms of sexuality but it sets the stage for something so much greater. See, we leave ourselves after reading Proverbs longing for hope and for restoration and redemption. And ultimately we need to go to the story of Jesus to find this. Jesus is the one who bears all shame. Here's how it happens. On the cross, we talk about the cross being the place of ultimate suffering designed by Rome to be the great torture device, ultimate pain and suffering and death reserved for the worst kinds of people. In that day, it would have been thieves, perhaps. But I think, again, if we're to talk about who would be on the bottom of the moral ladder, the sort of people that would end up on a cross, sexual abusers and pedophiles. And Jesus enters this space, willingly chooses this death, not because he's done any of that. In fact, it's the quite opposite. Never came close but he enters the shame. He brings it upon himself. And he brings healing. And he brings life and ultimately what the Bible describes as salvation. He brings hope. See, the Bible describes grace, the truest form of grace, as a restored relationship accomplished only by the blood of Jesus, the Father reconciled with the world, people reconciled to each other. That is so incredibly crucial. And so what we want you to hear today is that if the conversation around sexuality, everything in life, in fact, but specifically today around sexuality, if you are feeling deep shame and regret, that's actually not God's intentions for life. His intentions are restoration, hope, life, and he has made a way in Jesus for that to happen. Because sex was never intended to be a place of shame. In fact, as we transition to the next part of this passage, I'd just like to read a quote from a scholar that gives us a little bit of insight into how to read this. It's from Tremper Longman. 
The father, that is the father who's speaking to the son, the father uses tasteful but clear metaphors to urge his son toward a vital sexual relationship with the wife of his youth. Tasteful but clear. <laughs> Let's read the passage now. These metaphors. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, some great pickup lines for any of you single folk out there. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Tasteful, but clear. <laughs> I think if we were to explore some of the imagery of fountains and streams a little bit further, I might lose my job. Let's be real here. I think that illustrates something about where we stand. You see, I think there's kind of two sides of a spectrum here in conversation around sex. On the one side, a highly sexualized crude cultural moment that praises and flaunts the human body at every corner. And all the way on the other side, shyness, awkwardness, embarrassment, perhaps even silence, a desire to keep the conversation in the bedroom. Proverbs seems to suggest a third path. It seems to say this, God's wisdom includes tasteful conversations about human sexuality. Now, I don't know that today we would be able to do so through some of the metaphors and images that were just used. And I also don't claim to fully understand, like, I mean, again, I'm not, I don't have like 30 years of marriage to pull advice from and how to do this. Um, so let me, let me just try and offer a few things, but probably your starting point, if you're asking how to do this, that's probably the best conversation starter if you're wanting to open up conversations around sex. How should we do this? If I could offer two other just practical insights, one would be to listen, and the second would be to practice personal transparency. One, listen. I think we need to offer a posture where we can hear people in their struggles, in their tensions, even if it's coming from a place we don't necessarily agree with. We need to offer a world where people can wrestle, can doubt, can think, can process alongside of each other. And secondly, I think we need to practice personal transparency. As I mentor guys, I frequently decide that I want to confess sins of sexual temptation, of mistakes and failures, because I think there's some that happens. I think you actually breathe life into a room when you acknowledge your own weakness. When you bring things in your world that are in the darkness to light, I think there is a light that shines into others' lives because of the fact that we can be transparent. And I think that opens a conversation. We see here that sex was designed to be good, not a place of shame, a place that we can talk about, discuss, that it was actually part of God's designed intentions for humanity. Sex is good, but it is not the source of life. Skip with me to chapter 7 of Proverbs and read. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. 
Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, hear this, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. What's interesting here is, especially in verse 4, the imagery of wisdom as a woman. As you read Proverbs, and perhaps join us as we go through Proverbs in a reading plan, a summer reading plan throughout the summer, explore how Proverbs uses different personifications of things in the form of women. There's wisdom personified as a woman. There's folly and foolishness personified as a woman. Sexual temptation personified as a woman. What's fascinating to me is that the solution here apparently in the world of sexual temptation is found in wisdom. That you choose between two women here. You choose between sexual temptation and wisdom. It's not you choose between sexual temptation and perfection, perhaps even heterosexuality, as if those are the only two options. What we are saying is, yeah, God designed marriage for one husband, one wife, but at the same time, sex is not a requirement of flourishing. Jesus is. The New Testament authors begin to use a language for Jesus that describes him as God's wisdom, that the source of life is found in Jesus. I think this is a difficult conversation to have today because sexuality is increasingly a marker of identity. And that's a relatively new concept. In fact, it was in 1869 where the terms heterosexual and homosexual were first used for the first time your sexual orientation became your marker of identity. Scholar, a a woman by the name of Rosaria Butterfield written an incredible book by the name of The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Incredible book on what it looks like to practice hospitality with people. Uh, Her story is an incredible one of God's transformation in her life of someone who is far from Jesus and then ultimately has found life in him. She has this to say. This idea that who you are is better found in your sexual desires than in your image bearing of a holy God has been brewing under the surface since the 19th century when Freud first introduced the cultural idea of sexual orientation. The challenge, the the comment that God's wisdom, his perspective would say, is that our experience of true life is not determined by sexual activity, but by our proximity to God. That in any given moment, regardless of your ability to simply have sex, You have everything you need in God, in Jesus, to find true life. I think that's actually a word of freedom. Because one of the natural partners of a sexualized culture is the idealization of youthfulness. If sex is our marker of identity and the place where we find true life and true bliss, then in your mid-20s, That's really the prime of life. So I'm in it. Like, I I am in prime real estate for finding true life. Unfortunately, if you're not in your mid-20s and you're past your mid-20s, everything is downhill. 
But instead, if sex is not the marker of true life, if it is perhaps God and Jesus, it doesn't matter what circumstance you are in. You can be single. You can be struggling with infertility, dysfunction. You can be a widow. No matter what, in Jesus, you have everything you need to find life. What a word of freedom. Now, it's interesting, in the, the final place that this passage goes in chapter 7 is there's a bit of a telling of a story. And I think this is an important story for us in understanding that God's wisdom is actually the source of life. See, the father tells the son a story of a man who is walking on the road late at night towards a corner, and a woman meets him there. And this woman is a temptress, a seductress, someone who ultimately causes this man's defense to fall. But it's interesting, what we find is the thing that breaks him fall, that makes him fall. It's not her beauty. The story goes on, and we learn actually that she acknowledges she's part of the people of God. She's been making sacrifices, and it's not that admission that she's part of God's people that causes the walls to fall. She set everything up. She set up perfume and linens and, and has made the place ready for him, and that's not what makes the tables turn. In fact, she starts to kiss him, and that's still not what we are told breaks down the wall. She acknowledges, my husband is gone and isn't going to be back for a long time. Security and safety of not being found out is not what makes him fall. Read chapter 7, verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. It's not on account of her beauty. It's not on account of her initiation. It's not on account of the freedom from being found out. No. The unrelenting message numbs our hearts to the reality of God. The constant message of an alternative way of life that is not the path of God's wisdom, that is what breaks down your walls. That is what causes us to make poor decisions regardless of where we think we are right now. The unrelenting message breaks us down. This is true for sex. This is not just true for sex. This is how sin works. Bit by bit, an unrelenting message that breaks our walls down and causes us to believe that the way of Jesus is not actually the way of life but that we would find life in some other way. What is the solution? Well, the only solution, according to Proverbs, and I think what we will see, is a full immersion in God's story. There is a necessary immersion in the story of God, particularly as contained in the pages of Scripture. The start of every chapter, go back and look, of chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7 includes instructions to bear close the commandments of God. This is actually the path of finding ourselves, choosing the way of wisdom, the way that is ultimately the way of life. Constant immersion in the story of God. Immersion in the story of Jesus. Immersion in God's wisdom, in his applied perspective. The desire 
is to have every single moment of our lives consumed by God's presence. To wrestle with the words of Scripture, with God's word, and to understand how does this apply to me 168 hours of the week. And even as we began to have communities that would engage with this conversation relationally, who would open up in vulnerability, who would walk in the trenches and acknowledge the pain and suffering and meet people there and offer a way of life for the fact that sex is good. All of these things are about immersion in God's story. That is the only solution to the reality of an unrelenting message that says something different to the story of Jesus. And that's what we're invited into. If you want to be immersed fully in the story of God in every single moment, find places to connect in community, join us on our summer reading plan, this is our path forward in terms of human sexuality and in terms of every area of life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We know you're on the throne. Forgive us for the ways in which we do fall short. We miss the mark. We hide. We do not bring things to light. We do not acknowledge our need of a savior, God. We pray for your forgiveness for your restoration, for your hope and life in the area of sexuality and in all areas of life. In your name.